Well, church, if you would, go and grab your Bibles and uh, open up with me to the book of Colossians. We have been studying through Colossians for a couple months now, and we're Colossians chapter 4. And so Colossians chapter 4 this morning. In fact, uh, the paragraph we're going to be looking at this morning is really the last teaching portion of the book of Colossians. So we're going to be in verses 2 through 6 this morning. And after this section... Most of the letter beyond this is personal notes from Paul. Paul addresses different friends of his in the church of Colossae. He sends greetings from some of his friends. And so this is is the last teaching portion of the book. And just to sort of set it in its context for you, remember, from chapter 3 on, most of this letter has been application. So the first two chapters of Colossians is Paul reminding us of the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus. So he's told us who Jesus is. In Jesus, Paul says, dwells the fullness of deity bodily. Everything was made by him and through him and for him. He reigns preeminent over all of creation. And this great king who Jesus is, is also the one who has rescued us from our sins and has redeemed us from darkness. Paul says that in Jesus dwells all the treasures of hid, of wisdom and knowledge so that all that we need for life and godliness is found in Jesus. That's the first two chapters. Well, then as you move into chapter 3, Paul starts telling us how we should live as followers of Jesus. In, in other words, as people who have been given new life in Jesus, we're now called to live new lifestyles. And you can think of it like these expanding concentric circles as we move through chapter 3. Paul starts very narrowly. He starts by talking about what we're to do individually, what our personal mindset's supposed to be. We're to set our mind on things above, Paul says. He says that we're to, to put to death all of the attitudes and all the behaviors and all the habits that marked our old lives. We're to die to all that stuff. So he starts personal and then he starts expanding out. He then tells us what our church life is supposed to look like, how we're, supposed to, how we're to engage with other believers. And then he expands out and tells us what our home life is supposed to look like. And then he expands out and tells us what our work life is supposed to look like. And then finally this morning, we're going to come to the last circle that Paul's given us, where Paul's going to describe what our, our life with unbelievers should look like. In other words, how are we to engage? He's told us how we're to engage with family and how we're to engage at work. But how are we to engage? What's our goal in our relationships with people who are outside of the faith? So that's what he's going to address this morning. So if your Bible's open to Colossians 4, let's just dive in and read the passage. Colossians 4, we're going to read verses 2 through 6. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. He says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, there are some topics that I can preach sermons on, and I know before I ever get into the pulpit that there are going to be topics that um, could very easily bring deep conviction over about 99% of the congregation because they're topics 
that I think most Christians recognize we don't do a very good job at. And Paul deals with two of those topics in our text this morning. He deals with prayer and he deals with evangelism. And I think there's probably not a Christian in here who would say, yes, my prayer life is everything that it should be. We all feel like we fall short of where we should be in prayer. And there's probably not a Christian in here who would say, yeah, you know, I think I am as faithful and consistent with the gospel as I should. We all feel like we fall short when it comes to our witness with the gospel. And I say that just to make the point. So it would be very easy to preach this sermon in such a way so that we all walk out feeling very guilty. Right, I could say, hey, look, you know, the average Christian spends less than two minutes a day in prayer. How can you claim to have a relationship with God if you rarely talk to God? And if you really believe in hell, how can you go a day without sharing the gospel? When's the last time you led someone to Christ? And, and I could preach it in a way so we all walk out feeling like whipped puppies. And there's a place for that. When we're not doing what God's commanded us to do, we should feel real conviction about it. But that's not the method that Paul uses in this passage. He, d- he doesn't write the verses we just read. He doesn't write it as correction. He writes it as instruction. So just like he's already told us how we're to engage with our family and how we're to engage with our church family, he's now giving instruction on how we're supposed to engage with a lost world. And I want to look at this just under two very broad headings. Here's the first one. Number one, we're called to speak to God about people. You notice how Paul starts this by saying, continue earnestly in prayer. And remember, this is a section where Paul is going to be focusing on how we're to to engage with an unbelieving world. And he starts by talking about prayer. In other words, the point Paul's making is, if you want to know what you and I need to do for the lost people around us, the first thing we need to do is pray. Prayer is one of the essential ingredients of evangelism. I've mentioned to you before the way um, John Piper describes prayer. I think it's helpful. Where Piper says that our problem as Christians is we too often think of prayer as a, a home intercom system. When prayer should be viewed more as a battlefield walkie-talkie. That we think of prayer as this intercom system we use to, to get hold of the divine butler because we need a, a refill of sweet tea. When prayer is meant to be used for the battlefield, we're radioing headquarters because we need reinforcements. We're radioing headquarters because we need help on the battlefield. And that's what Paul's doing here. Because remember where Paul was when he wrote this. Paul wrote this as a prisoner in Rome. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, who he's trying to influence with the gospel. He's trying to make headway in Rome, which is awash in every kind of idolatry, and every kind of paganism you can imagine. And it's like Paul's writing to these Christians in Colossae, and he is saying, radio headquarters on my behalf. Pray that God would blow open a pathway for the gospel in Rome. So Paul is viewing prayer as one of the key methods of engaging with unbelievers. Well, how does Paul tell us to pray? Well, notice he says, continue earnestly in prayer. That word earnestly means steadfastly. Your translation might even word it that way. We're to pray steadfastly. That means we're to persevere in prayer. We're to hold on in prayer. We're to keep at it in prayer. If you think of the the parables that Jesus gave in the Gospels about prayer, the main point that Jesus makes in most of those parables is about persistence. So you remember there's the the parable 
that he gave of the, the unexpected guest. Do you remember that parable where there's somebody who shows up in the middle of the night at this guy's house and he doesn't have supplies? He's got to show hospitality, but he doesn't have any bread to give. And so he goes to his neighbor's house asking for bread and starts knocking on the door in the middle of the night. And his neighbor doesn't want to get out of bed. His neighbor's tired. His neighbor's already locked up the house. But he just keeps on knocking and he keeps on knocking and he keeps on knocking until finally the neighbor gets up and helps. Or do you remember the parable about the, uh, the widow who's going to this unjust judge and she's asking the judge to give her justice and the judge is just constantly ignoring her but because she keeps going back and she keeps going back and she keeps going back, eventually the judge answers her request. It seems that the point Jesus emphasizes in his parables more than any other is on the importance of perseverance in our prayer life. We're encouraged in prayer not to give up. We're encouraged in prayer to keep asking. Now that, that's a hard thing for us to get because that's not the way we usually function. I, I would just think of it parents. So if your child comes up to you today at 4.30 and asks you if y'all can go to Zaxby's for supper tonight, and then they keep asking you every 30 seconds if y'all can go to Zaxby's for supper tonight. Are you pleased with that persistence? Or do you eventually go, if you ask me one more time, you will never go to Zaxby's again for the rest of your life. But that's not the way the Lord is. God is pleased by persistence. And I don't mean, I don't mean vain repetition where we just keep coming and mindlessly, thoughtlessly saying the same things to God over and over again. But God encourages persistence. God delights in his people asking him of things. Listen to how Proverbs says it. This is Proverbs chapter 15 verse 8. It says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Now notice, the prayer of the upright is God's delight. Now, prayer certainly includes more than just bringing our request. But the heartbeat of prayer is bringing requests to God. The, the catechism that we teach the kids in our church has a section in it on prayer. I wonder if any of our kids have learned the catechism part on prayer. The question is, what is prayer? Any of our kids know the answer to that question? What is prayer? Prayer is asking God. No one knows it. Prayer is asking God for the things he has promised in the Bible and giving thanks for what he has given. That's prayer. It's asking God for the things he has promised in the Bible and giving thanks. So notice, prayer involves thanksgiving. Prayer involves confession but the root of prayer is asking. It's bringing our needs to God. It's pouring out our requests to God because God actually tells us he delights in that. And he doesn't just delight in us asking. He delights in us holding on in our asking. He delights in us persevering in our asking. So I would just apply this to our unbelieving world. So if you have, listen, if you have lost friends and family members that you are praying for, persevere. Keep praying. Hang in there. Don't give up. God is pleased to answer that kind of persevering prayer. We were just talking last night in my house about a story with uh, George Mueller. George Mueller, you, I know you know that name. George Mueller was an evangelist in England back in the 1800s. Did a lot of great work establishing missionaries throughout England. 
But Mueller t- tells the story that when he was in his 30s, he, he wrote down a list of five friends of his, five men who did not know Christ. And he committed that every single day he was going to start praying for the salvation of those five friends. And he did. Here's what Mueller wrote in his journal. He writes, quote, In November 1844, that would have been when he was 39 years old, In November of 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single interruption. Whether I was sick, whether I was in health, whether I was on the land or on the sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might be, 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. Day by day, I continued to pray for them. And six years passed before the third was converted. So this is 17 years after he first started. He writes, I thank God for the three and went on praying for the other two. 36 years later, George Mueller says in his journal that he had continued to pray for the salvation of those other two friends. Until finally, 52 years after he first started praying for them. This is, this is a few years after George Mueller passed away. 52 years after he first began praying for those friends, those other two friends came to faith in Christ. Well, what, what Paul is urging here in this church is he is urging that sort of persevering prayer. Keep praying. Hold on. Don't give up. Secondly, he tells us that we should pray Back in verse 2, he says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant. That word vigilant, your translation might word it watchful. We're called to be watchful in our prayer. Or you might say, we're called to be alert in our prayers. We're called to keep our spiritual eyes open so we know what we should be praying for. That's the idea. Because we don't want to just constantly pray vague generalities. Do you ever find yourself doing this in prayer? Well, it's just, Lord, bless my kids, and Lord, bless my church, and Lord, bless the missionaries. Well, how do you even know if God answers that prayer? We want to pray specific things. Well, the only way we know how to pray specific things is if we're watchful, right? Is there a, is there a family in your Sunday school class who seems to be struggling who you can start specifically praying for? Is there a friend at work who's going through some health crisis and they've always been closed off to the gospel, but God might use this crisis to open up their heart for the first time to the faith? Or is there a new believer you know who who has hit a rough patch in their walk with the Lord? The idea here is you got to keep your spiritual antenna up. So we know the, the specifics of how we should pray. And then there's one other how of prayer. Paul adds in verse 2, We're to be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So this isn't, this isn't guilt-driven prayer. Guilt-driven prayer doesn't last very long. This is grace-driven prayer. We pray because our hearts are bubbling over with gratitude toward God. I mean, isn't this true, Christian? God has been so good to us. God has been so patient with us. Look, I can look at my life and It's absolutely true to say that I I am not as far along today in my spiritual walk as I hoped I would be. That is a sad fact. But it's also true that I'm far from where I once was. And God has been patient with me, and God has endured with me. The, the, The verse in Philippians 1 has been absolutely true in my life as it has been yours. You remember where Paul says in Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I have found that 
wonderfully true in my life. God has been faithful and God has been patient so that all of our prayers should have a a flavor of gratitude. Even in the angst and even in the need and even in the burden, there's a flavor of gratitude to the prayers of Christians. We pray with thanksgiving. That's the how of prayer. So there's persistence, there's watchfulness, there's gratitude. Well, Paul then explains the what of prayer. So what exactly, when it comes to unbelieving world, what exactly should we pray? Well, Paul highlights two things that he wants them to pray for, for him. And here's what Paul says. Look back at your text, verse 3. Here's the what. Paul says, meanwhile, also praying for us, here's the first thing, that God would open to us a door for the word. That's the first thing Paul says pray for. Pray that God would open a door for the word. What does that mean? Because you actually find Paul using this language a lot. Paul often writes, in fact, you could, we could look in Revelation too where we get something very similar. You find lots of examples in the Bible of praying and thanking God for open doors. So here's an example in Acts 14. Acts 14 is where uh, Paul and Barnabas have just come back from their very first missionary trip. The church of Antioch sent them out. They come back to Antioch and they're giving a report to the church of what happened, of how God worked. And here's their description of their trip. This is Acts 14, uh, Acts 14, verse 27. It says, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. Now here's the conclusion of what God had done. And that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Do you see that same open door language? God had opened a door of faith. That means not only had God given Paul an opportunity to preach the gospel, But it means also that God had created a unique season of receptivity of the gospel. God had given Paul the chance to preach the gospel, and then then God had opened hearts so that people received the gospel. Listen to Paul use this same language. This is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now here's why he's going to stay in Ephesus. For a great and effective door has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So why was Paul going to stay in Ephesus longer than he had planned? Well, he says because an effective door had been opened. And that doesn't just mean God was giving him the opportunity to preach. Paul always found opportunities to preach. It means that God had accompanied Paul's preaching with fruitfulness. That as Paul preached... God saw fit to open the hearts of the hearers so that there were people who were hearing Paul and coming to faith in Christ. It makes you think of the story of Lydia's conversion where we get this open, same opening sort of language. Listen to Acts 16. It says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of, pur- seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart To heed the things spoken by Paul. Do you see what happened with Lydia? So first, God gave Paul an open door of opportunity. So Paul had the opening to share the gospel with Lydia. But listen, that's not enough. The problem with unbelievers isn't just ears. Yes, ears need to hear the good news, but that's not the only problem. The other problem is, all of us in our sin, all unbelievers' hearts are sealed up in sin. 
So we don't just need ears open, we need hearts open. And Paul's saying that's what God wonderfully did for Lydia. Not only did she hear the gospel, but when she heard the gospel, God quickened her heart. When she heard the gospel, God opened her heart so that she received it. Okay, when we're praying for open doors, that's what we're praying for. We're praying on the one hand that God would give opportunities to hear the gospel. And we're praying on the other hand that God would open dead hearts. I'll tell you what this is such a helpful reminder of. It's a reminder to us. Listen, church. It's a reminder to us of how helpless we are on our own when it comes to evangelism. That lots of times in Christian circles, there's the idea that if you can just figure out a slick enough gospel presentation, you're guaranteed fruit. Just figure out the best presentation and there are guaranteed to be results. So it's all about the sales pitch. Like you just got to learn to close the deal. But these passages remind us, you can have the most slick presentation in the world and that presentation can't take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. You can have the most slick presentation in the world and that presentation can't make a dead heart live. Only God can do that. And so in our going and in our speaking, this is just reminding us we are ultimately dependent on God. So we are asking God to open hearts. We're asking God to awaken hearts that are dead, to quicken hearts that are closed off in sin. So Paul says, pray for me that doors will be open. That's the first thing he asked. Then here's the other side of it. Look back at verse 3. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word. To speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So Paul's asking them to pray that when those opportunities come, he'll make the most of them. He says, pray that I'll speak the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? We've seen that sort of phrase lots in Paul's letters. The mystery of Christ is the gospel. When you see that word mystery in the New Testament, it's talking about something that was veiled in the Old Testament that has now been brought to light. So this wonderful news of the gospel was there in the Old Testament, but it was veiled. It was in types and shadows and prophecies. But now on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, it's like the curtain has been ripped back and we see the gospel for what it is. That's the mystery of Christ. We see the good news for what it is. It is this amazing message that the God who created the universe has come to us in flesh in the person of Jesus. And that in Jesus, we see God. In Jesus, the law, every part of the law has been fulfilled. In Jesus, the punishment for our sin has been paid in full. He went to the cross bearing the weight of our sin and enduring the punishment that should fall on us instead. And he rose from the dead to conquer the grave and to win eternal life. And now that same Jesus calls us to repent, to give up living for ourselves and to come to him in faith, to come to him and believe. And Paul is saying, pray for me that I will speak that. In fact, did you notice in verse uh, 4 where he uses the word manifest? Pray that I will make it manifest. That, that just means pray that I will make it clear. We don't want to be confusing with the gospel. 
We don't want to be ambiguous. We don't want to constantly beat around the bush and never say what needs to be said. So Paul is praying that there will be courage and clarity. Okay, pray that for yourself. Pray that for our church. Pray that God would give us the courage to say what needs to be said and pray that God would give us the clarity that we wouldn't speak in veiled terms. You know what's so easy to do in sharing the gospel? It's easy to get to the hard claims that the gospel makes and kind of take a step back and not say it for what it is and sort of try to sugarcoat it and make it sound a little more palatable. Paul's praying that we will make it manifest, that we'll be plain with what the gospel is. So we're praying that God will give us courage and clarity, and then we're praying that God will open hearts. I love the way Donald Whitney describes the work of evangelism. Listen to this quote. He writes, Sharing the gospel is like walking around in a thunderstorm and handing out lightning rods. You don't know when the lightning is going to strike or who it will strike, but you know what it's going to strike. The lightning rod of the gospel. His point is, Not everyone who hears the gospel is going to be saved. Not every time you share the gospel is someone going to be saved. But when God decides to save, he always does it through the gospel. So I guess the way to sum up this point is, so we want to hand out as many lightning rods as we can and then pray for thunderstorms. Hand out lightning rods and then pray that God, as he sees fit, opens hearts. So we talk to God about men. That's the first half. Secondly, we speak to people about God. So through our prayers, we're doing indirect evangelism. We are, we are radoing headquarters, getting on the walkie-talkie and asking for help, asking for reinforcements, asking that doorways be blown open for the gospel. But we're also called to do direct evangelism. We're called to engage with people who don't know Christ. So what is that supposed to look like? Here's what Paul says. Look at verse 5. Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. So here's the first thing. Walk in wisdom. You know the word walk in the Bible has to do with your everyday life. And wisdom just means knowing how to live God's way in God's world. And so our our desire is we want to live our everyday life in a way that pleases God, that shows wisdom. We want to handle conflict at work. We want to work through conversations. We want to engage with friends. We want to make our decisions. We want to spend our money in a way that honors the Lord. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. It means we go through life. To use Paul's language earlier, we go through life with our minds set on things above. We know this life is not all there is. Church, listen, we got to live under the reality, this life is not all there is. There is a God above us, and there is an eternity beyond us. And when we live with that in view, it changes how we see everything we go through in life. When I live with the reality that there is a God above and there is an eternity beyond, it helps me put the, the right amount of weight on the right things. You get what I mean by that? It's so easy in life to start treating light things like they're heavy and start treating heavy things like they're light. So living under the reality of God and eternity helps me see things. I'll give a practical example. So when I'm sitting at the restaurant later this evening, what's more important? That the waitress and the cook 
And everyone in the restaurant knows I'm unhappy because my chicken is a little bit cold. What matters more, doing that or influencing my waitress with the gospel? We're, we're in basketball season for our little kids. What matters more as a parent at a basketball game? Making sure that referee knows that the ball did not go off my kid when it went out of bounds. It went off the other kid and his bad call. This guy was getting paid $10 to ref this game. His bad call calls my kid's league, the, calls my kid's team the game. What matters more, that or making it clear to everyone that I live for something bigger than a kid's little league basketball game? So, so we want to navigate through life in a way that we realize that there are heavier things at play. So we walk with wisdom. The opposite of walking in wisdom would be walking like a fool. And the Bible gives some descriptions of that too. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6 9. Paul writes, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lust, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Here's one of the ways foolish people walk. Foolish people love money. So we want it to be clear by how we live that money is not our God. Because the fact of the matter is, for most people in American culture, money is the God. We don't want to live like fools. That's a negative example. Here's a positive example of how we're supposed to walk. Here's 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says to this church that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Here's how you walk in wisdom. Live a quiet, simple life. Stay away from all the drama. Don't live an opulent, self-indulged lifestyle be a hard worker, don't be a lazy person who depends on other people to take care of you and don't be a busybody. Now all that is unbelievably simple, but just those simple things will set how you live apart from about 95% of the people in the world. And Paul's saying we want to live the sort of wise, God-weighted life that draws notice. That's the first side. Paul adds in verse 5 that wise people... Notice this phrase. It's been on my mind all week. Wise people redeem the time. That word redeem means to buy up. And, and time is the idea of opportunity. So Paul is saying, here's what wise people do. They grab hold of the opportunities. The point that Paul's making here, listen, if, if this hasn't dawned on you let it yet in your life, it's coming. The point that Paul's making here is life is unbelievably short. And time goes by unbelievably fast. Which means there will be opportunities that you have this week in your life that you will never have again. There will be chances you have this week. People whose hearts will be uniquely soft. Family members you'll see at a family gathering this week that you may never see again. And what Paul is urging us to do here is don't let those opportunities slip through your fingers. Grab hold of the chances that God is giving you because the next thing you know, you're going to blink and those chances are going to be gone forever. Wise people 
redeem the time. And then verse 6, Paul gets into our, our speech. He says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, when Paul talks about our speech here, he's not talking about standing in front of a room giving a speech. The word speech he uses here is about our conversations. So he's talking about the conversations that we have. We're going to have lots of conversations with people who are outside of the faith. He uses the term earlier about our conversations with outsiders. One of Paul's favorite ways to describe Christians in the Bible is we are in Christ. But there are lots of people who are outside of Christ, who are outside of the kingdom. What are our conversations supposed to look like with those people? Okay, so that's what Paul's addressing here is what do our conversations... Now, and let me make one more point before we get into the specifics. It was really helpful to me this week to think. So when Paul is addressing these believers in the Colossian church, he doesn't envision every member of this church picking a street corner in Colossae. He doesn't picture every person in this church finding a street corner, standing on the street corner and do, doing open air evangelism and street preaching. Not that that's wrong, but that's not what Paul envisions here. Instead, what Paul envisions is that all the people in this church are going to be regularly having conversations just through the course of life, having conversations with people who are outside of the faith. So they needed to know how to be, how to be intentional about those conversations. So specifically, Paul says that our speech, our conversations, should always be with grace. And if, there's, if there is anybody who knows about grace, it should be us. We have experienced the grace of God firsthand. That means, uh, when we're talking about grace, all we're talking about is, God has not treated us according to what our sins deserve. That's what grace is. God has not treated me according to what my sins deserve. What, my, what I deserve is I deserve God to find me guilty. I deserve for God to condemn me. But in Christ, in Christ, instead of condemnation, I've, I've gotten justification. He has credited me, imputed me the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and he has found me to be innocent in Christ. What I deserve is to be counted as an enemy of God, but instead through Jesus, he's adopted us as sons and daughters. So it's so all of that just to say... Christians are people who swim in an ocean of grace. That is, that is where we live. And Paul is saying here, we should be bending that grace out to other people in our conversations. We should show grace in our speech. So our words, should it constantly be boastful and bitter? In, in our speech, we should be winsome and we should be kind and we should be gracious and we should be patient. I tell you, speech is one of those areas, and this is for me and I'm sure it's for you, it's one of those areas where we tend to cut ourselves way too much slack. Because there's so many times in life where we'll spend time running this person down or blowing up, let my tongue run away in anger, and then we walk away and we go, well, I, that's just the kind of person I am. I'm the kind of person who speaks my mind. Well, yeah, it's the kind of person you are because you're a sinner. But that doesn't make it okay. That's, in fact, listen to what Proverbs says about the kind of person who just speaks their mind. This is Proverbs 29, 11. Listen, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. The King James words it, a fool uttereth all his mind. So being a Christian means we learn how to sort through what's in our minds. And we realize there are some things that pass through my mind that need to be put to death. 
before they ever come out of my mouth. And we want to be wise in our speech so that the things that do come out of our mouths, we're not harsh, abrasive, argumentative sort of people, but there's kindness and there's honesty and there's graciousness and there's gratitude. But he doesn't just say we speak with grace. Notice the next phrase. Paul says that our words are to be seasoned with salt. That's helpful because that tells us that it's not just supposed to be a sort of constant flow of sugar-sweet drivel coming out of our mouths. There's supposed to be a saltiness to our speech. Now, how you define that word matters a lot, but what does Paul mean by saltiness to our speech? Well, think of what salt does. A lot of things. On the one hand, when there is a wound, salt stings. And so that's helpful because it reminds us that we're supposed to be gracious in our speech, but graciousness doesn't mean we forfeit honesty. Graciousness doesn't mean we back up from our convictions. Graciousness doesn't mean we stop speaking what's true. What else does salt do? Well, of course, in Paul's day, they would use salt to restrain decay. They would put their meats They would salt their meats to keep them from decaying as fast. And Paul's saying that we have an opportunity with our words to do that. With our conversations, we can can slow down the slide toward immorality. We've all been in those situations where you're having conversations with a group and you know it's moving in a bad direction. And and just one well-spoken word here or there can turn the whole course of the conversation, can inject truth where there's error, can stop gossip, can correct something that's gone off course. What else does salt do? Well, we know how salt helps food. Some of you who have been in the hospital on salt-free diets, as if hospital food's not bad enough. How is salt-free hospital food? It's terrible. We, we like food that has taste to it, that has flavoring to it, that's seasoned well, that's the idea here too, I think, is Paul is saying that our words as Christians should, should make the faith appealing, appetizing. Uh, I guess another way to get at it would be, you and I should not talk about the gospel or should not talk about the faith in some sort of dull, disconnected, lifeless way. When we are talking about our faith, it should be clear to the people who hear us that we really have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That this gospel we're talking about, we have experienced We know the freedom it brings. We know how satisfying Jesus is. I'll mention one other thing that salt does. Um, Salt also creates thirst, doesn't it? If you were to go home this afternoon and eat a whole bag of pretzels, what are you going to desperately want? You're going to want something to drink because salt makes you thirsty. And I think that's another point Paul could be making here is that That in our conversations, we want to direct the conversation in such a way that God might use it to awaken spiritual thirsts. So that the questions we raise, the points we make, it might be something as simple as pointing someone to a deeper spiritual issue they've never considered on that topic. I've I've mentioned to you before that to me one of the most helpful ways to think about it has been the way that uh, Greg Kukul described it. Where he said that our goal as Christians in our conversations is to put pebbles in people's shoes. That's such a helpful analogy to me. If you've ever been hiking or you're a runner, there have been dozens and dozens of times when I've been out jogging and little pebbles kick up and slide down into the shoe. And they're not big, just tiny, but I can constantly feel them there. And so every step I'm thinking, 
how do I adjust my foot? Am I, am I going to have to stop and take my shoe off and pull this pebble out? It's not causing significant pain, but it's just constantly on my mind. I know it's there. And that's a great picture of what we're trying to do in our conversations with unbelievers. We're, we're trying to put pebbles in shoes. We're trying to raise questions, have the sorts of conversations that get people thinking about spiritual issues that they may not have thought about before. So we're raising spiritually significant questions to hopefully, by God's grace, make people thirsty. And then Paul ends it by saying, we want to know how we, here's the phrase, how we ought to answer each one. And notice, the idea there is, we're going to answer people differently. This is why we can't just have a canned approach to evangelism, where you have this rote speech and somebody walks up and you kind of hit the button and, and give the same speech. No, we, have to, we know how to answer each one. People are in different places. They have different backgrounds. They have different misunderstandings. They have different sticking points. And we have to engage people where they are. Have conversations. And as you do, if you go into this conversation with a God awareness, you can find a dozen different places to inject your faith into the conversation. You, you might can help remove an obstacle. You might can help answer an objection. You, you might can help raise an issue that creates a spiritual thirst. And it's not even that every conversation has to end in a full gospel presentation. That's the goal. But that's not what Paul says here. He just says we need the wisdom to know how to answer each person. It's more like responsive evangelism. It's listening to people and navigating through conversations with an eye toward God and the gospel. I like Dick Lucas's summary of this text. Listen to how he describes what we're being urged to do in this passage. He writes, Perhaps the abiding impression left by this most practical section is that there is never a time, according to Paul, when our responsibilities to the outsiders can be out of mind. Always we must be praying that opportunities for the gospel to preach to them will be given by God. Always we must gladly take those opportunities, however unpropitious our circumstances. Always we must use the fleeting moments for Christian response when people give us opportunities. And always, however far off in understanding the questioner may be, we must seek the wisdom and grace to answer with words that will awaken his or her appetite for the things of God. Always, always aware, always thoughtful, always intentional. I guess to go back to the Donald Whitney quote earlier. So as we go into this Thanksgiving week where you're going to have lots of conversations and see family and see friends, we want to hand out lightning rides and we want to pray for thunderstorms. You'll have opportunities this week. You might, you might assume you're going to have those opportunities a dozen more times. You may never have that opportunity again. Redeem the time. Pray that God would open doors. Live wisely. Speak with wisdom, speak with grace, speak with saltiness so that God would be, pl be pleased to work. So let's pray together and ask for God's help in this. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord yourself. And maybe you haven't prayed for unbelievers in your life. 
coworkers, neighbors, friends, family. Or maybe your burden for unbelieving family has waned. And, and just take that right now to the Lord. Be reminded that God is pleased by that, that sort of perseverance. So ask God to do what Paul prayed for here. Ask God to help you redeem the time. Ask God to open doors of faith. And that you would walk through those doors and make the gospel manifest. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to go to the Lord in prayer. And then I'll come close this.